How many of you are on Twitter? I don't expect many hands. A few of you. I'm impressed. There's about five. How many of you know what Twitter is? How many of you don't know what Twitter is? All right, a few of you. All right. Well, I'm not going to explain it. It's just way too complicated. But I will say this. There's a brand new person on Twitter that everyone, and I mean everyone, is talking about. If you go online and go to twitter.com slash hidden cash, hidden cash, you will find a very interesting person. Let me tell you about this person. Hidden cash has amassed over 400,000 Twitter followers in just 10 days. 400,000 people have logged on and, and looked upon this person's page and clicked follow. Worldwide media attention has been directed at this individual and no one knows who he or she is. Why has so much attention been given to this person known as Hidden Cash? Because this individual, whoever they are, has started some scavenger hunts online. But not just any scavenger hunt, a money scavenger hunt. This began in San Francisco just less than two weeks ago. This anonymous person has put money in different parts of the city of San Francisco and put clues online where you can find this money. Sure enough, those who have followed the clues have happened upon little toys. They're uh, little Angry Bird toys, for those of you that know what that game is. Little Angry Bird toys that when you open up, there's a wad of cash in there. Anywhere from 50 to 100 as much as $200 has been found. And th- there has been dozens and dozens, if not 100 findings already in the last 10 days. The most recent uh, uh, scavenger hunt was just yesterday, up north in Hermosa Beach, California. An epic scavenger hunt, writes KTLA News, an epic scavenger hunt on Saturday in Hermosa Beach, created by a generous Twitter user, at Hidden Cash, prompted thousands to post speculative tweets about the game's possible location and some to search throughout the night. In other words, they were wondering which beach was it going to be. He said it's going to be at some Southern California beach. I've hidden cash on a beach in Southern California. Everybody was wondering where it was going to be. Hidden cash stated Friday that 36 toys stuffed with, with cash would be hidden on an undisclosed beach and at 11 a.m. the next day he would disclose which beach it was. Well, one couple, Shelly uh, Gingall and Nick Marlez, thought that they might take advantage uh, of the game before it began. They took a guess of where the beach was. They picked Santa Monica Beach. And all last uh, Friday night, this just, just two nights ago, all Friday night, Shelly and Nick were on the beach of Santa Monica <laughs> kicking up sand and digging for the 36 toys filled with money. I'm ready to find an epic amount of cash, said Nick, around 6 a.m. the next day. But later, they learned that they were searching the wrong beach. When Hidden Cash finally revealed which beach it was, quote, Hermosa Beach, Between the pier and the volleyball nets, as you face the ocean, there are 36 of them. Go. Moments, 
moments after Hidden Cash sent out that clue on the internet, thousands upon thousands of people descended upon Hermosa Beach, California, causing traffic jams and beach overcrowding. This is true. Check the news yesterday. Discoverers of the money-filled toys said that they were buried about ankle deep and filled with anywhere from 50 to $200. I saw the picture uh, on the news of Hermosa Beach. There were children, there were men, there were women, there were seniors that were out there kicking up the sand and digging up sand and out there with their, uh, what do you call those things? Metal detectors, even though it's a plastic toy. Okay. It was amazing. The picture was amazing. How many people were on the beach right after 11 a.m. yesterday? Thousands and thousands. Rumor has it that San Diego is next. So how about you? Are you itching to learn the next clue and run out looking for cash? You might be thinking, Neil, not me. I would never go on a scavenger hunt looking for money. That's ridiculous. Now, that might be true. You might not do it for 50 or, or 100 or even $200. But what if I said hidden cash was offering $5,000 or $10,000? Or what if I said in one stuffed Angry Bird toy, he had hidden $100,000 on the beach? Would that change your mind? It might. Oh, the lure. The lure of money. It's amazing what we human beings will do when the price is right. The Bible has a lot to say about money. A lot to say about money. In fact, the scriptures speak more on this topic of money than the scriptures do on the topic of salvation. Bet you didn't know that. More on the topic of money than on the topic of salvation. And today, we're going to spend this Sunday and next Sunday taking a very close look at this important subject. Our goal in this study is the same goal that we've had in each of these sermons in this series. On your outline, the title of this sermon series is The Rest of Life Resurrected. What do I mean by the rest of life? I mean everyday life, the things that we do every single day, things like go to work, uh, things like uh, sometimes maybe we're a parent, maybe we're in in a marriage, maybe uh, we are on social media, maybe we are interacting with technology. We've gone through some of these sermons already, and there's more to come. Today we're looking at money. How do we interact with money as a Christian? Later on we'll look at topics like rest, play, leisure, what it means to, 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 to do these kinds of things in the spirit that God would have us do them. Everyday life, the rest of life, resurrected, looked upon with new eyes through the eyes of Jesus, how he would have us live it, how Jesus today would have us look upon money, how we can resurrect our view of money, how we earn it, how we spend it, how we save it, how we give it, how we invest it, how we budget for it, whether we should borrow it, whether we should lend it, and so many more things. 
how can we have a resurrected view of money? Today, the title of this part six in the series is subtitled Old Money. And what I mean by that is today we're going to look at the old way of looking upon money. And what I mean by old is, is our old flesh, the, uh, the, the sinful side of how we sometimes look upon money. I, I had been crafting this message and realized there is so much that I want to say about the old man, how we often get, get stuck in ruts and in the temptation of the flesh when it comes to money, that I, I wanted to pretty much devote this whole sermon to that. And that next week we'll look at what it means to look upon money through new eyes, through resurrected eyes. But today I want to look at it through what we often get, how we often get stuck in it. Stuck in an old and sinful and even sometimes deadly view of money. The Bible indicates that money tugs at our hearts in one of of two very deadly ways. And the vast majority of us struggle with at least one of these emotional attachments to money. So on your outline today, I've listed here two old, sinful, and even deadly emotional attachments that some of us can have and do have and still struggle with toward money. The first on your outline, if you're taking some notes, the first is this. Some of us love money. Write that down. Some of us love money and dream about spending it or earning the status that comes with it. I'll say that again. Some of us love money and dream about it, about spending it and earning the status that comes with it. We're going to be looking at a number of scriptures today. Very, very topical message today because we, we, there's a, a, a plethora of scriptures to, to deal with on this topic. But first I want to say that Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He said, in the last days, men will be lovers of money. Lovers of money. There will be an increase, an increase in the number of people who love money. Not a decrease, an increase. And so we should expect as we hear those words that even in our midst, even in our community, the struggle to avoid the love of money is real. It's evident and it happens in Christians. In fact, I would argue that, uh, that many of you sitting here today after having gone through this, we'll look upon this and recognize, you know what? I do have a love for money. I do have a love for spending it or, or for having that status that comes with it. So let's take a look, though, at some of the consequences that come with a love for money. First, First Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. It's right there listed on your outline. First Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10 says this. From Paul to Timothy, he says, But those who desire to be rich... Fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I want you to circle for a minute some of the verbs uh, that you see there, some of the verbs that you see in that text. Just take 30 seconds and circle every verb that you see. Circle the verbs. Action-oriented words.
quite a number of them in this text. I'm just going to mention a few of them. Take a look at verse 9. Well, actually, no, I want to hear from, from you. Which ones did, did you. Which ones were you drawn to, actually? Go ahead, shout them out. Which verbs were you drawn to? Fall. Someone else. Desire. Someone else. Drown. Wow. What a word. Stray. Pierced. Yeah, look at these verbs, folks. Look at, the, look at the language with which Paul speaks to Timothy about this. It is devastating language. He says, those who desire to be rich fall. Fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts. Stop right there. Riches promise so much, right? Riches promise so much, and yet the wholesale pursuit of riches leads to so many consequences. He says, first and foremost, those who desire to be rich, those who love riches, fall into temptation, a snare, a trap, and into many foolish and harmful lusts. What kind of lusts? Well, the Bible speaks of the kinds of lusts that, that we can fall into. Uh, I know this passage well. It's one of my, uh, it's my father-in-law, one of his favorite passages. It's on your outline there. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. John writes this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Paul says to Timothy in, in, uh, in 1 Timothy 6, he says, if you... If you love and desire riches, you will fall into this trap. You will lust after things. Anything your eye can set its, its, its gaze upon. You will lust after fleshly and material things. Things that bring you only temporal pleasure. Not only that, not only will you, will you fall into lusts and, and snares, but you will also, the, the next big verb there, you will drown he indicates there, right? Which drown men in destruction and perdition. So the falling part is one thing, but not just to fall, but to be covered over. To be covered over to the point of death in destruction and perdition. Destruction there in the words perdition there in the Greek, they, they, they can mean a great deal of things. They can mean uh, temporary destruction. They can mean physical loss of life or just physical harm. They can also mean eternal loss of life and eternal harm. Addressing unbelievers, surely, uh, were he to be speaking to an unbeliever, surely Paul would be indicating there that the love of money is certainly a path toward hell. Were he to be addressing this to Christians, which by and large he's doing in uh, this particular book of 1 Timothy, he's addressing Timothy, who's a pastor leading a Christian church. He says, nonetheless, there's destruction, there's perdition, there's danger ahead. Whether you're regenerate or unregenerate, there is deep and devastating consequences when you love money. Drowning in destruction and perdition. That's why Jesus said, 
to his disciples in Matthew 19, assuredly I say to you, it is hard, hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. His eyes, that man's eyes, the, the, the man or woman who pursues riches, they get distracted. They get distracted. And they start kicking up the sand. And they start digging and digging and digging. And, and it'll never stop. And pretty soon they've failed to look up and their life is over. And all they've done is pursued riches and have forgotten, have missed out on the glories of the kingdom of heaven. On entering in, which comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Which comes by, by, by humbling oneself And not trusting in the riches in the sand, but looking up and saying, God, I trust you for my provision. Jesus, I trust you to be my provision, my security. Another verb from the first Timothy text, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. Strayed from the faith. Christians, take good note. Paul is saying very clearly, many believers can fall into this trap. Fall into a trap of an old view of money. Straying from the faith, walking away from the faith. Being distracted by the things of this world. Taking our eyes off of Christ. Fewer, fewer passages. Turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. I'd like you to see this one a little bit more in context. Fewer passages are more relevant to the topic of being distracted by riches than that, in, than that which we see in Mark chapter 4. Because here we're, we're dealing with the parable of the sower and the seed's going out and the seed is the word of God. The seed is going out. And, and, and Jesus in the gospel of Mark describes four different kinds of soils. Four different kinds of soils, dirt, upon which the seed falls. And in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, we'll look at the first three soils here. He says this, Jesus is interpreting the parable now, and he says, the sower sows the word of God. Verse 15, and these are the ones by the wayside. Where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan comes in immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. That's soil one. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, soil two, who when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with gladness, but they have no root in themselves, and so they endure only for a time, and afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So we've gone through two different kinds of soils. The first soil in verse 15 is a soil in which Satan has swooped in when the word comes and has taken that word away. He swooped in and caused disruption in the, pre, in the receiving of the gospel. Soil 2, verses 16 and 17, these are the ones upon which the, 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 the word is, is placed in the soil and it, how, how does it indicate it there? On stony ground. When they hear the word, they receive it with gladness. It sprouts up quickly. They have a quick recognition to it, a quick response to it. Yes, I I can do that. But as they make this profession of faith, as they try to seek the Lord, verse 17, they have no root. They've not thought through the, the consequences. They've not counted the cost of what it means to follow Christ. 
They have no root, and so they endure only for a time. They may or may not have truly believed in Christ, but their perseverance fails. It fails. They endure only for a time, and when when something bad happens, tribulation happens, persecution happens, they stumble and they're out. And now we come to the one, the third soil, who's blinded by riches. Take a look at this. Verse 18. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. They hear the word, but then their eyes start wandering. They start thinking about the world, about its lure. Oh, if I could just kick up the sand, I'll find it, they think. The deceitfulness of riches, it's a lie. The desire for other things of the created world and not the eternal things of the creator. They come in, they choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Straying from the faith, friends. When we say straying from the faith, we don't mean that this person went to hell. Um, Paul is replete in his writings that, hey, once you've been justified by faith in Christ, you are a child of God. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. If you believe in Christ, you're going to the kingdom. But you can stray from the faith. And as you do stray from the faith, there are consequences in this life and a loss of reward in the life to come, a shame that will come on the last day when you look back and say, wait a minute, I guess I don't have much to show for my Christian life. Straying from the faith and money, friends, money, the pursuit of money, is the, one of the primary ways that Christian men and women stray from the faith. It chokes their spiritual growth. It stunts their maturity in Christ. Back up to 1 Timothy 6. We finish out verse 10. And finally, and here's a self-inflicted verb, and they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. They pierce themselves through. They fell on their own sword. They knew better. But they didn't have the maturity, the wherewithal, to recognize that this pursuit is not of God. I am not to pursue riches. They pierced themselves through, and they ended up alone. Ecclesiastes 4.8, this is one of, my, one of my favorite, definitely one of my favorite books of the Bible, a great passage here in Ecclesiastes 4.8. Solomon writes, There is one alone, without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all of his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. He keeps going after it and going after it, but he never asks himself, wait a minute, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good The good meaning companionship, sons, brothers, family, things that are of substantive value. For whom do I deprive myself of what is really good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. No end to his labors. 
nor is his eye satisfied with riches. Alone, Solomon writes. He's alone. He dies alone. And you see the, the bumper sticker, right? He who dies with the most toys wins. Solomon says no. He who dies with the most toys loses. Loses badly. Is alone at the end of his or her day. Working and working for money, but never satisfied with riches. Finding themselves alone. And pay close attention to that phrase, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. It's never satisfied. It's always going. He's always seeking it. Solomon reiterates this truth again and again throughout Ecclesiastes. We saw it in our, in our memory verse, our new memory verse. Ecclesiastes 5.10, the one who loves money is never satisfied with money. Amen? The one who loves money is never satisfied with money. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. If you are a man or a woman or a young person today who struggles with the love of money, let these verses sink down deep. I've given you many so that you can be reiterated. Uh, it can be reiterated again and again and sink down deep in your soul from the Old to the New Testament, from the teachings of Christ to the teachings of Paul and John and Solomon. If you maintain a heart that craves money, know assuredly that your craving will never be quenched. That old burning desire, it will never be fully met. You will never reach the day, ever, where you say to yourself, oh, I've reached it. That's enough. That's enough. I finally figured out how much I needed, and this is enough. You'll never reach that day. Your love for money will perpetually be an unattainable goal. You all know the name Rockefeller. John Davison Rockefeller, born 1839, died 1937. An American businessman who co-founded the Standard Oil Company. So successful was John Rockefeller that he became the first American to have a net worth of over $1 billion. In, in his day, $1 billion. Adjusted for inflation, historians and economists alike agree that Rockefeller was worth about $350 billion in today's world. $350 billion. An unbelievable amount of money. And yet legend has it that uh, one day a reporter asked John Rockefeller, uh, they, they were remarking on his incredible wealth, and the reporter asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? His answer will be forever enshrined. He said, one more dollar than I have. Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? $350 billion? No. One more dollar than I have. If you maintain an old, unresurrected, 
perspective on money, you will end up a shell of a person. And Rockefeller was a Baptist. But he was a shell of a man when he made that statement. James 4, you ask amiss that you may spend it on pleasures. You lose sight. When you become that shell, you lose sight of what truly matters. You start seeking things just for pleasure. And it'll even endanger your very life. Jesus says, for what will it profit? Mark eight thirty six. what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world, yet loses his own soul. On the back of your outline now. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? There is no profit, Jesus implies. For the unregenerate, the love of money, for the, for the unbeliever, the love of money will keep you from humbly trusting in Jesus to be your one and only provision because you will look at money as your provision and you will be blinded to the truth. For the believer, the love of money, it won't bar you from heaven if you've trusted in Christ as your savior, but it will perpetually stunt and weaken your heart, mind, and soul. And when Jesus returns, the shame, the shame of your earthly life will be laid bare at the judgment seat of Christ. So Jesus concludes that infamous teaching in Luke 16, verse 13, when he says, no servant, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve both God and money. Now for some of you, this discussion on the love of money is hitting you just square in the face. You're reading this and you're reading the scriptures and you're considering your own heart, I hope. It's the point of us gathering is to consider our hearts, where we're at in our walk with Christ. And then look at God's word and say, where do I need to be? For some of you, this is hitting you square in the face. You love your wallet. You love your credit cards. You love your house and your car and your vacation. You love clothes and, and, and the newest and the latest and the greatest. You love electronics. You buy the latest TV. For some of you, this is hitting you square in the face. You're obsessed with money. You're obsessed with buying, with spending, with shopping. You love, maybe some of you, you love that status. That status that comes with having a a sufficient amount. A certain amount that, that gets you in the right places. That puts you in front of the right people. The right parties. Some of you, it's, this is hitting you square in the face. You know it to be true of you. You know it's a struggle of yours. This is an old way. An old, dying, and deadly way in which you look upon money. And you know you need to get to work on remedying this. And we'll have some thoughts at our next gathering to talk about how to remedy it. But others of you might be thinking, Pastor, honestly, you know, I I appreciate this part, but I don't think I struggle with the love of money. I don't don't crave it. I I keep it in check. I don't crave material things. 
I don't think I struggle with this one, Pastor. To that I say praise God for the grace that he's given you because for for so many this is the greatest of struggles. But you know what? You still may yet struggle with a second emotion, a second emotional attachment to money as you interact with this important subject. And this one is something that I struggle with. And it is number two. Some of us worry about money and fret about having enough of it. Some of us worry about money and fret about having enough of it. It's not that we're, we're, we, we want millions, but we, we just are constantly thinking about it. Do I have enough? Do I have enough to pay the bills? Do I have enough to put food on the plate? You might relate with a man by the name of Thomas Turner who wrote in Relevant Magazine last April, he, he wrote this, until a few years ago, I had a terrible relationship with money. I lived in constant fear that my money would disappear. Every time I faced an expenditure, I was filled with anxiety. I was terribly afraid that my financial goals, saving for a house, providing for children, paying for grad school, that these goals would erode and my family would be left lagging behind the opportunity and the growth and becoming well-established adults. The way I worried about meeting them was paralyzing at times. Whether paying a utility bill or an invoice for a doctor visit or my taxes, I would have the same level of uneasy hesitancy as if I were being prompted to throw our cash into a fire pit and let it burn. Can you relate to that? Worried, anxious about money thinking about it daily, not thinking about riches, not craving wealth, but thinking about it constantly because it's a concern on your heart. Moments of panic, tension, tension in a, in a marriage about who's spending what and how much is appropriate. Will we have enough this month? Will we have enough this week? It can be as Turner wrote, paralyzing. Absolutely paralyzing. This second emotional attachment to money. And don't discount it. Don't look upon the one who desires riches and say, well, I'm not like them. I don't have that attachment. But yet you think about it every day and worry and fret and are anxious about it. Do you really think you're that much better? Better off? It can be paralyzing when we worry and have anxiety about money. It can distract your mind from what you know to be true. If you would just look up and see the Lord and look back and see what he's done for you time and time and time again. Look up, look back. Look up at who he is. Look back at what he's done. That is the essence of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 12 on this idea of worrying about money. Luke chapter 12, verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? 
Verse 25, And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind for all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. To you who struggle with worry and anxiety over money, and I would argue there's, there's again many of you who have this struggle. To you who struggle with worry and anxiety over money, pay close attention to verse 30. Jesus says, the nations. Verse 30 is very often overlooked in this text. He says, the nations. The unbelieving Gentile nations of the world, the unregenerate people of the world, he says, the unregenerate peoples, the nations, are the ones who worry and fret about having enough food and drink and clothing and shelter. Jesus says, worrying about these things, that's the old way. That's the unresurrected way to look upon money and provision. That's the way someone who does not have me, Jesus says, that's the way they look at money. Because they have nothing else. They have no provision other than money. They have no security other than money. But we want to resurrect this part of life. We want to make it new. We want to take those cares and those worries and like Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you and to say with the psalmist, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. You might be thinking, well, that's easier said than done, Neil. That's way easier said than done to say don't worry about money. Because you see, I still have bills to pay. In fact, I'm in arrears with bills to pay, Pastor. I have bills and bills and bills and they've stacked up and I'm overwhelmed and you're telling me not to worry about money, that that's what the nations, the unregenerate do? Well, that's just easy to say, isn't it? It's easy to say, just don't worry. Look up, look back. But I still need to pay the bills, Pastor. And in a sense, you're right. Simply casting your cares upon the Lord, guess what? It does not pay the bills. It doesn't. It won't pay that doctor bill. It won't pay that utility bill. Casting those anxieties and those worries and saying, here it is, Lord. It will not pay one penny of that bill. But guess what? Neither will worrying. Neither will your anxiety. Neither will the consuming hours and days and weeks and months and years 
that you spend fretting about money. So we're still at a quandary now, aren't we? How do I resurrect my view of money? Today we've looked at how so many of us currently view money. We either love it and pursue it day after day, we pursue riches, we pursue wealth, or some of us, we worry about it, we fret about it, and yet that does us no good either, doesn't pay one penny of those bills, but yet still we worry and fret day after day and hour after hour, and it consumes our life, just like some are consumed by the pursuit of riches. Whichever emotional reaction that you have to money, and my guess is you probably have one or the other, if not both, whichever emotional reaction that your old flesh has to money, it can and will consume your heart and mind if you don't remedy it. We can't allow this condition to remain. We deal with money every day, and if we're going to take this everyday aspect of life and resurrect it, we're going to need some solid teaching from God's word to help us with a solution. We've identified the problem. Next Sunday, we'll tackle the solution. But as you leave today, I don't want to leave you drowning in the problem. I want to leave you with a ray of hope. Actually, I want to leave you with a little riddle, a simple aphorism that I had never, I had never heard this before. But in my studies through the scriptures and through the commentaries on money, I will surely be applying this aphorism to my own heart and mind as I seek a resurrected view of money in my own life. And it is this, bottom of your outline, leave with this. You will be rich when what you have is enough. You will be rich when what you have is enough. Let that thought permeate in your heart and mind. Let that thought sink into the emotional attachment that you have to money and let it guide you out of the old and into the new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, we are at times overwhelmed by this subject because, Father, money is something we deal with every day, as you well know, Lord. Your word has so much to say about money, so much, Lord, so many good things. Today, Father, we've offered up to you this sacrifice of of understanding the problem, the old problem of money. God, would you, by your spirit, work on our hearts now, help us to identify which problem we have. Maybe it's the pursuit of riches, or maybe it's just worrying and fretting time and time again. Maybe it's both. God, help us to identify the problem, to prepare our hearts for solution. We want to rid ourselves of the old way of looking at money, Lord, and we want a new and resurrected way to look forward to how we earn it, how we spend it, how we save it, how we give it. God, we want a new way to look upon money that can give us hope and encouragement. We're asking you for it, Lord. Bring us back again next week with expectation of what the solutions you will have for us in your word. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.